Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This also is God's holy word. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like a creature, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for you give us, even in this chapter of Revelation 4, a glimpse of the scene of heaven. And Father, we pray that we would catch such a glimpse each time that we gather for worship, that it is no small thing to come into your special presence, that we might worship the one who is seated on the throne, the Lord God Almighty. Father, we pray, acknowledging that some have been stricken dead because uh, they took it lightly. Father, we acknowledge that you indeed are thrice holy and that we are not. Father, we thank you for you cleanse us by the blood of your son, Jesus, the blood of the lamb. Father, we thank you for your generous provision for us. We acknowledge, Father, that we're in need of your mercy. We acknowledge, Father, that we, not, we cannot come by our own merits, but we come only with the perfect merits of Jesus Christ that we've received by faith. Father, we pray that we would humble ourselves before you, that we would tremble because you indeed are holy. Father, we thank you that you reign on your throne. And there is stability in our lives because we trust in you. Father, we know, though difficulties come, that we trust that you reign, that you reign supremely, and that we have no fears. We thank you for your provision for us. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. 
We pray, Father, in thanks that you graciously receive sinners. Turn us from our sins. May we forsake them. May we trust in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that our Lord Jesus would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Have you ever been <clears throat> in a situation, in a neighborhood, in a business, uh, in a restaurant, and you're asking the question, who's in charge here anyway? As in, you see some things that you don't particularly like. They're not done your way. They're not done to your satisfaction. And you're asking the question, who's in charge here anyway? Do you ever wonder that regarding our world, regarding your life, the details of your life? That you're asking the question, who's in charge here anyway? And perhaps at the heart of that question is the person who is in charge needs to have a complaint box or needs to have office hours so that I can speak to that person. Well, uh, Job attended those office hours and voiced his complaints, and it didn't go so well with him. Because afterwards, he said, I put my hand over my mouth. And he acknowledged the foolishness with which he had spoken. Perhaps you and I must come to that same conclusion. Even as we see in this Revelation chapter 4, who's in charge here anyway? Well, the one who is on the throne. He is the one who is in charge. He's in charge of heaven and earth. And all authority belongs to him. That if we have some complaint, ultimately our complaint with any authority is our complaint with the one who gave and everyone their authority. And that's God who sits on the throne. You realize that when you start complaining... You're coming into God's presence. His holiness, we're told that he is a consuming fire. And that we should be careful what we say. We should be careful how we think in his presence. We're always in his presence. Scriptures say that we should not be speaking much when we gather. And, and we're before the Almighty God. Here, with this book of Revelation was written during a time of much persecution and affliction. And there were certain people, uh, whether it be the Caesars or kings, uh, that these people had unyielding power. And they, are, they were exercising despotism. They're exercising uh, a harsh rule specifically against God's people, against this quote-unquote new religion of Christianity. Revelation was written as an encouragement and comfort to God's people and a reminder of Christ's certain victory over the forces of evil. It's a reminder that our Lord Jesus is the one who is victorious, and he will return for his people. And this scene of heaven, of seeing the, the throne room, so to say, it's a reminder to us that our Lord God is in charge, that we need not worry. We're reminded that there's a lot of imagery and symbolism, flowery, ornate descriptions. Hopefully, I didn't go too much into those details. The focus is really on what's there, the throne. God sits on his throne, and he rules supremely. And that we need to focus on that big picture, the main idea. It's easy to try to read spiritual meaning in all kinds of things. 
I, I realized maybe I started doing that a bit. But we focus on the main things. God is in control. He sits on his throne. He is holy. And that we are those who worship him. So the truth that we see in this Revelation 4 is God is seated on his heavenly throne, creator of all and sovereign over all, and all worship is due him. God is seated on his heavenly throne, creator of all and sovereign over all, and all worship is due him. We'll look at this in two points. The first, the vision of God enthroned in heaven, and second, the worship of God enthroned in heaven. So the first point, the vision of God enthroned in heaven. <clears throat> I'll read a, a few verses here. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. <clears throat> so here we have in chapter 4, we have... Uh, Really, it's the, the second scene. So the first scene, we, we saw uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, when John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So the first vision that John received on the island of Patmos was covered in, in Revelation chapter 1. That accounts for Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. So the letters to the churches were covered in that first vision. Here in Revelation chapter 4, we have the second vision. So again, he says he's in the spirit. So this idea that, uh, that he's present and that uh, he's, he's been given some vision. A door standing open in heaven. So the description is that you, you think about... You're in someone's, uh, you're, you're, you're walk up to someone's house and their for, front door is cracked open. So, uh, you know, depending on, on what angle the door is, you can, have, you can have some view of what's inside the house or what's inside the room. And this is the image that John has. He sees the door cracked open and he describes what he's seeing. He says, at once I was in the spirit. He describes a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Notice that as he goes about his description, the ornate, flowery descriptions, there is a lack of form for the one who is on the throne. There's no mention uh, about the form of God. There's a mention of a throne. A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. It reminds us of what uh, what occurred in the Old Testament. We talked about how Revelation has a whole lot of Old Testament allusions. Deuteronomy 4, verse 12, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And from this, later in De Deuteronomy 4, <clears throat> that God instructs them about how because they saw no form, they weren't to attribute any form to God, whether a form of man or woman or beast or animal. This is, this is the concept of the second commandment. You shall make no graven image that we might worship it. So we see that even in this revelation that John receives, there's no contradiction. There's no contradiction to scripture. 
that we think about other forms of uh, non-inspired revelation, right? Other religions come with these revelations, and oftentimes they contradict what comes before, but there's no contradiction here. The descriptions, most of them, are about the things surrounding the throne. The descriptions about the throne are not forms. He mentions three stones, a jasper. Uh, he mentions here the, the term is carnelian. Others have sardius. And then a rainbow with the appearance of an emerald. So uh, the jasper, I looked it up, the modern understanding of jasper is some kind of opaque stone. Often it has, it's spotted and it comes in all different kinds of colors. But in Revelation 21, verse 11, the description about the jaspers having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So apparently they're referring to some other type of stone. It's a clear stone. It's transparent stone. For uh, it's a reminder to us that our God is spirit, that he has no body. He's transcendent in brightness, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. The sardius, or the carnelian, is a red gemstone. It symbolizes the justice, the righteousness of God. That Hebrews tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is why in the Old Testament, the role of the priesthood, that there was constantly going to be animals being sacrificed, and there was blood shed. And we ask, well, why is there no temple right now for Judaism? And there hasn't been in what seems like almost 2,000 years. It's because as far as their religion is concerned, the final sacrifice has already come. He is Jesus, our Lord. And that temple is not going to be rebuilt because Jesus is that temple. He is that temple, the fulfillment of that temple. There was, there was around uh, the throne a rainbow. It had the appearance of an emerald. Emerald is a precious stone that's, that's green. But you think about the rainbow and how important that is. We think back to how surrounding God and everything about God is his truth, his faithfulness. That God promised that he would never wipe out the entire world again by a worldwide flood. This was in Genesis 9, 15, and 16. That God is faithful and true, and it is impossible for God to lie. It's not that he chooses, simply chooses to tell the truth, and he has the ability to lie and the ability not to lie. No, he has no ability to lie. This is the scriptures saying it's impossible for him to lie, from Hebrews 6, 17, and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. When God speaks, he cannot lie. It is impossible for him to lie. And that rainbow is a reminder of his faithful promises, his covenants that he makes with men. He is bound under oath. You think back to the scene that uh, 
the scene with Abraham, the promise that God made. God had already told them certain promises. And, and then Abraham apparently wasn't believing them. So in Genesis 15, he came to Abraham. There was a ceremony. Uh, there was flame. There were animal parts. Big animals were cut in half. Small animals were killed and, and put one on each side. And it wasn't, it wasn't Abraham who passed between the pieces. Uh, the symbol was that God passed between the pieces. And all that was to teach Abraham, may God be cut in half. May God be severed if he broke his promise to him. We see also the truth in the covenant of grace, the promise of the gospel. That there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. In him is true forgiveness and eternal life. That this is the hope that we have. That our sins can and are forgiven in Jesus Christ our Lord. We have also in verse 4 a description about 24 thrones and the 24 elders around the one throne. There's much speculation about these 24 elders and who they are. But uh, here we follow the principle of, of Scripture interpreting Scripture. So Revelation 21, verses 12 to 14, we have a description in the New Jerusalem regarding the 12 patriarchs. These are the sons of Israel, the heads of the tribes, and also the 12 apostles mentioned. So here we have 12 plus 12 equals 24. And it symbolizes the church throughout time. The church in the Old Testament and the New Testament period. We acknowledge that uh, the church didn't begin, per se, at Pentecost. There, there was a sense in which there was the, the church that was founded. But we have to believe that the church existed before that time. These were the Jews. This is why in the New Testament... Uh, we're told that Abraham is the father of those uh, who descended of him, but he's also the fa our father by faith. So we look to him as our forefather in the faith. Rightfully so. In every, in every way that, uh, that a Jewish person who believes in Christ can claim lineage from him. What's important is the faith, not the blood. The lightning and thunder... Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. The lightning and peals of thunder is as if it were a scene straight from Moses at Mount Sinai. That, uh, that God had visited his people. In Exodus 19, verses 16 and 17. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. So the lightning and thunder, symbolic of, of the presence of God. The four living creatures mentioned in verses 6 and 7. Uh, you have, was it in the Old Testament? Was it Ezekiel or Daniel? The, the mention of these same creatures, and they're called cherubim, which are the highest level of angels, that these four are 
surrounding the throne, one on each side. Here, we're reminded that we take a big step back, that we ought not let the images and the imagery distract us. The focus of the entire scene from heaven is God who is seated on his heavenly throne. It's a reminder to us that we ought not to lose sight. You know, you think about election season when it comes, that men have minor preferences. I'd rather see this person or that person in charge of this city, of the state, or the nation. Or this person, that person, or this party, that party. It's a step back, and it's a reminder that God is seated on his throne. He is the one who rules. He is the one who is in charge. He is the one who raises up one and brings down another. God rules on high. No plan of his may be thwarted by any secondary cause, that God is the primary cause, and no plan of God's can be changed. It is God who possesses all power and authority. And if anyone has authority, hey, children, you see, this is where your questions come up. Hey, uh, mom, dad, you, you told me I have to go to bed by whatever, 8, eight o'clock or 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, whatever it is. Who, who, who puts you in charge here anyway? See, this is where the question, who puts you in charge here anyway? Well, where do your parents get authority from? They got it from God. And, and why must you obey those in authority? Because God commands it. If anyone has authority, he received it from God. This is the teaching of Romans 13. This is a comfort then, even as those of you go through the challenges of life, the suffering, the degradation, uh, the ridicule, the reviling. God's people suffer. Christ's church suffers. And with it comes the necessary reminder that God is the one who reigns on his throne. You ask, why is this suffering needed? Why doesn't God just take his people out of all this suffering? Well, we have the reminder that you and I are still sinners. Christ's church is still far from perfect, that we need to be purified. This is why the difficulty is here, so that we might not trust in ourselves but we might trust in the Almighty God who sits on his throne. It's so easy for us to start trusting in man. This is why in the Psalms we have the reminder, trust not in princess, trust not in mortal man. Instead, we ought to trust God. The right response that you and I should have to God who reigns on his throne is, we see that in Psalm 99 verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. That we ought to give praise to God. He is worthy of our praise. He reigns on his throne. And we should delight in his rule over us. Do you find yourself asking that question often? Who's in charge here? Why are these things structured in this way? Why are these difficulties in my life? If I were in charge, I would change all of these things in this way. Well, here we have our answer in Revelation 4.
God is the one seated on his throne. That is an answer, and that should be answer enough for you and for me. So that's the first point, the vision of God enthroned in heaven. We have the second point, the worship of God enthroned in heaven, in verses 8 through 11. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Here we see that there's worship offered by the four living creatures, and there's worship offered by the 24 elders. We learn something about their response to God and also their words. So in verse 8, we have the worship offered by the four living creatures. What they're saying is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Notice that these angels, the cherubim here, they do not threefold repeat any other attribute of God. It's not love, love, love. It's not goodness, goodness, goodness. It is holy, holy, holy. Our elder read earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1. Be holy, God said, for I am holy. You realize you will invariably become what and who you worship. Why was it that in this period, you look at all the various temples of the, the Greek pantheon or the Roman pantheon. They worship their false gods. Why is it that every single one of them with idolatry came all kinds of immorality? Because they became like who they worshipped. Their gods were fickle. Their gods, uh, their gods were not trustworthy. Their gods were whimsical. They were controlled by their passions. And their worship reflected it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Are you transformed by the holiness of God? You realize the first response to that is that we would tremble before God. But the lifetime response is that we would be transformed into that holiness. That we would see that holiness and say, we need to follow him in his ways, in his character. In 1 Peter chapter 1, the description was the futile ways of our forefathers. There's various responses you and I can have. For those of you who are first-generation Christians and those of you who are not, but you, you look at the typical pattern, first-generation Christians. You're confronted with the gospel. And the response you can have is say, are you telling me that all of my fathers, my forefathers were all wrong? Does that mean that all of them went to hell? 
But you have to answer those questions. But ask yourself this. What you believe doesn't change where they are for an eternity. You realize that? What you believe, if you say, well, I'm not going to believe it because if I believe this, it means all of my ancestors are suffering eternally. Well, whether or not you believe it has no bearing on where they are. The, the question is, where will you be? Are you going to be transformed by the command of God that you would trust in Jesus Christ? This is, this is for you. That you would give up what you had, what, what you've been taught throughout these generations. Isn't this exactly what Abraham did? That his father was a polytheist, an idol worshiper? That Abraham was called out of that. You will leave your father. You will leave your land. You will go to a different place. Those are all evidences that Abraham believed the true and the living God is because he was saying, okay, you've asked me to leave my, my father. I will. You asked me to leave the worship of all of his gods. I will do that too. Where, do you, where will you have me go? And so here, trusting in the Almighty, the Lord Almighty, he who is holy, 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 it means that his commands, his character, should have a grave influence on your transformation. A willingness to walk away from what you had, not a defensiveness, a willingness to walk away. That he calls you to something far better. He calls you to set up new patterns, new rules, new traditions for you and your family. They are better. They're better than the ways you were once taught. If we think about the worship offered by the 24 elders. Verse 9 says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. So verse, verse 9 connects the worship of the four living creatures to the worship of the 24 elders. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. So there is some coupling the, 24, uh, the, the four living creatures, when they worship, there's some coupling with that that the worship of the 24 elders comes. Now, uh, the mention here, day and night, they never cease to say, seems to say that uh, there's a constancy to it. Now, is it, there's no interruption, or is it, this is eternal, meaning it keeps on going on. It's not saying that it's, never ending per se it's saying that the repetition of it is never ending the 24 elders what they do here they fall down before him who is seated on the throne meaning there's a prostration they they fall before him we see they have see this happen with jesus that there were people who fell down before him and worshiped him and we get some hints about who is here and who was there, Jesus, because in various scenes, you see it even in Revelation, when an angel, John, was a later in Revelation, John falls down to worship, and the angel corrects him, no, do not do it, worship God, right? He, he corrects him swiftly, no, can't be done. You see that happen in uh, Acts 14, 
that uh, you know Paul was there. I forgot who was with them, but uh, they, they think he's Zeus and Hermes, right? So then they, they bring these bulls to Simon and say, no, we are mere men like you. He, he corrects them, absolutely corrects them. That cannot be done. It must not be done. But you notice here in this scene, when, when others bowed down to Jesus, there was no correction. Right. It was fitting that here, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, would bow and worship before the living God. <clears throat> so there's this prostration. What they did, the 24 elders worshipped him. They gave him worship. And then they cast their crowns before the throne. When you think about a crown, we're told here that, um, <clears throat> let's see, verse 10. They cast their crowns before the throne. And the crown symbolizes something of great value. It symbolizes that which is lasting. It symbolizes authority. So the greatest possession of, of you is not your material wealth. Remember that this is a, this is a scene from heaven. Meaning that whatever material wealth you have, it didn't, it didn't transfer with you. It stayed behind. So the greatest possession then is your spiritual graces, your fruits of the Spirit, and the good works that God has worked in you and through you. It also symbolizes the crown, the authority, the authority that God has given his people. In 1 Corinthians 6, do you know that you will judge angels? that you will have authority to judge angels. So this idea of casting the crowns at uh, casting the crowns before the throne, it's an acknowledgement that all that we have, all that we are, all that is praiseworthy, it comes from God. It's a reminder to us, what do you have that you did not receive? And why do you boast that you did not receive it? Well, it's a reminder to us, everything that's praiseworthy, that it's for the purpose of bringing glory to God, not to us. These graces and good works were produced in you by God himself for the purposes of his glory. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So it's a forthright acknowledgement for you and for me that these spiritual graces are not of us. They are from God. <clears throat> it's also a reminder to us that the gifts that the Lord has given you, you're not the rightful owner of those gifts. You're only the steward of those gifts. A rightful owner can choose to do what he wants, but a steward must give an accountability for what he has done with those gifts. Listen also to what the elders say. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So God is worthy of our worship and praise. And he's worthy of our worship and praise all the time. All the time. Here I... Think about, you 
know, when you think about the difficult times in life, funerals, I mean, are funerals difficult? Oftentimes people say, hey, sorry, I didn't attend your, your relative's funeral. And, and it's because they, they even will say, I didn't know what to say to you. I was like, hey, you're not supposed to say much at all, right? You, the goal is you, you be there, right? Uh, but you think about those difficult times, right? And, and the loss, because here we acknowledge that it's Christian and non-Christian alike. Uh, loss is always difficult. Uh, funerals are always difficult. But is it often the case that in those periods, we say, oh, so-and-so lived, you know, 89 years. Thank you for these 89 years. We thank you for the overlap that we've had as friends or as family members, whatever the case may be, are we able to see the positive even in those difficult circumstances, even as we mourn the loss, right? That we would see the good, God's goodness manifested in it. So God is worthy of our praise and worship all the time. It's a timely reminder about our weekly worship. Is it the case that we start to forget this scene of heaven, he who is seated on the throne, and that we just kind of start to go through the motions, right? That we let momentum carry us. Okay, it's Sunday, gotta get going. All right, everyone get up, get out of bed, right? And hey, I'm coming with the water, right? Whatever you need to use, I'm coming with the rod, I'm coming with the water, whatever's the case. You think about how easy it is to fall into some kind of a rut where uh, we're just going through the motions. May this chapter 4 of Revelation be a reminder to you, the one who is seated on the throne, that it is no small thing to come into God's presence, that our God is worthy of our worship, that when we come, that we ought to worship him wholeheartedly, that we cannot be worshiping him wholeheartedly if our hearts are somewhere else. If you're thinking about what you're going to have for lunch or, or what you're going to do on Monday morning, then it's not a wholehearted worship that are offering to God. Even this thought about the, the last day of the week or the first day of the week, it makes a huge difference. If it's at the last day, it's after all my labors, I'm giving God to you the last day, my worship, my leftovers. Versus, you know what, out of all the energy that I have, I'm going to use that energy to serve you and to give you worship, give you my attention, undivided attention, and what is left over I will use to, to work and to labor, the labor you've called me to. But the first day is different than the last day. It's a reminder also that God is the Lord of creation. Here, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It's a reminder that God, as Lord of creation, all things were created by him, but all things were also created for him. We exist for him. This is the purpose of your existence, that you and I serve his purposes, that we bring him glory, that we enjoy his love. We see the exact same thing mentioned about Jesus, Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. 
the same worship. The role in creation attributed to God, the Father, attributed to the Son. We're reminded even as we think about this passage, the scene from heaven. So what evidence is there in this scene that it is God who is on the throne? If you look at the first, uh, first seven verses, right, he describes a scene of heaven, uh, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So our, our conclusion is that, okay, this is heaven, there is a throne, then the one who must be occupying the throne is God, right? So that's our conclusion. We see also that uh, the presence of fire, the seven spirits of God. And then we notice in particular regarding this scene, the response of the four living creatures and the response of the 24 elders. The four living creatures and elders, what they're doing, they're worshiping God. There's no correction given. There's not a, hey, stop doing that. That's wrong. And what the four living creatures and the 24 elders are saying, they proclaim him as God. This is what tells us that this indeed is a scene of heaven that God rules on his throne. As we think through uh, this passage, we're reminded again of what we ought to conclude that God is seated on his throne in heaven means that Satan is not seated on God's throne. He did not usurp his throne. He could not usurp his throne. It means that you, it means that I am not on God's throne. God is. God is on his throne. We cannot usurp that from him. We cannot think that we sit on his throne and that we can command him to do what we want. God is not on his throne some of the time. He's not on his throne even most of the time. He is always there. And he always will be. God reigns on his throne means that he alone is holy, holy, holy. And he rules in his holiness. When you think about various people, you think about people who are, who are rulers and just plain incompetent, we say that's scary. We think about those who are very, very confident, but very evil, we say, well, that's probably more dangerous than the person who means well, but is incompetent. And then we look at God, that he is holy, 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 and he is sovereign over all, and his love extends to his people. His wisdom is there. You think about all those characteristics. Well, hey, uh, what could go wrong? Well, he's uh, someone who's evil. Well, God is holy, holy, holy. Uh, the person uh, is not loving. No, God is love. He, he, he proved that by sending his son to die on behalf of his people. Uh, well, what about his wisdom? Well, he is infinite in wisdom. So he, he might mean well, but he's not smart enough to, 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 to make the right decisions. No, God is infinite in wisdom. What else is there for us that we might say, this God is worthy of your worship and mine? <clears throat> the church is imperfect. You and I are imperfect, tainted with sin. So God's reign is for our sanctification. This means that we endure hardship and the church struggles as Christ's beloved bride struggles through life, but it's a reminder that we are being purified by faith even as we trust in him. It's a reminder that there is no image, no description of God himself, no form mentioned. There are no violations to the second commandment in the scene of heaven. Rather, John describes 
what and who else is there at the scene. And that the 24 elders pay homage to God as representative of Christ's church throughout time. It's a reminder to us that God is rightfully due his worship, both as your creator and your redeemer, that you and I are reminded to get out of our drudgery, going through the motions, that we would worship God, that we would do so with joy, that we would do so with gladness, knowing that he has purchased a people of his very own, that God has redeemed you by the blood of his son, and that this indeed is reason to give him worship and praise. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord.